good morning. Good morning. Make yourselves comfortable. It's good to see you. All right. My name is Luke. If you're a guest, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to teach today. And uh, before we get into the passage, which I'm excited about, it's in 2 Corinthians, by the way, so you could be turning there. Uh, before we get into the passage, I wanted to update you on Central City, as we do every single week. We talk about the, the greater area around where we will be moving soon as a church. Um, I said last week I would be meeting with some city leaders, and I got to meet with two specifically that were memorable to me. And as I meet with these leaders, and there's about 15 or 20 that are already on my list that I'm, I'm pursuing times with, I'm not just getting to know them, but I'm interviewing them as well, right? These are people that have lived there for 30, 40, 50 years and have been active in that neighborhood. So I'm listening to their story. I'm learning who they are. I'm learning how, what, what, what a relationship looks like with them in the future. And two men in particular this week said the same answer to a question. I don't just ask them about their story. I ask them a very key question, and that is, what is the biggest mistake you have seen in churches moving into this area to do ministry? You've seen churches come and go, plant and fail, come in and change. What is the biggest mistake you've seen? Both of them, and these are two men that I'm speaking of particularly now that have been there for over 30 years, they said, we see churches coming in acting like nothing's been happening for over 150 years when God has been doing some amazing things. And they don't collaborate with the other churches. They don't collaborate with the neighborhood association leaders. They're not collaborating with the ministry leaders. They just kind of come in and they adopt it and they don't know what they're doing. That was helpful for me. That was helpful information. So, of course, I'm just draining them from every detail that they have because I'm trying to learn as much as I can. And, and I'd like to pray for one of them today. And His name is Steve Meisenheimer. He's the pastor at um, St. John's Lutheran Church, which is right in between Gay Street and Central. It's in what's called Emory Place, a little area there. Really nice guy, and he's done a good job of forming alliances with ministries. As a church, they don't do anything innovative in the area. They don't have anything that they call their own that they're really dumping into the city, but they've done a good job of forging strong relationships with ministries that do. It's a church actually not much bigger than ours. They've been there for over 150 years. The, the building itself is on the National Registry as, I guess, a historic building. It's an interesting uh, thing to watch their church grow and age. They're much, much older than we are, so their people being on mission, it's looking a little bit differently than our people being on mission. So I told them that we would pray for them today. They're a good church. He's a good man, and they're doing great things in that area. So let's pray for Pastor Steve and St. John's. Father, we thank you. We thank you for churches there that have been doing something for over 100 years when it looked totally different, and there were nothing but hotels with prostitutes in them all up and down that street, where the most shootings occurred right there on that street, where most of the arrests were being performed is right there on that street. And there have been people and families that have come and gone, come and gone, come and gone, that have been investing in that neighborhood for year after year after year. So Father, we thank you for what you were doing right there in that Emory Place area, in that Fourth and Gill area. And we just ask, God, that you would show us as a church where we can partner, where we can invest. I know we will forge alliances with ministries in that area, and I know we will have our own innovative things that will become very distinct to us. Lord, that we would continue to learn and that we would continue to be a blessing there and not just a meeting there. 
And Father, we do ask that you would continually build St. John's, that that church does not continually just get older and older and older and then eventually die off and have to shut the doors or sell the building, but it's, it sees a resurgence, and it just stays for another 125 years. Lord, you're very good. You're very good to us. You're very good to our city, and you're good in that area, and we thank you for all that you have done. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, if you're turning to 2 Corinthians, we're, we're going to stay in the series that we are now, but I wanted to tell you a tale that started actually in the Dark Ages, and it's concerning Vikings of all things. The tale goes something like this. There were a bunch of Vikings that had kind of a king, patriarch Viking that was being converted into Christianity by local missionaries. And so as it goes back then, as it still does in some countries, whenever someone becomes a Christian and they're the patriarch, the whole village becomes Christians, which that's a whole different sermon on whether that's a good thing or not, right? But you would have people march down with the patriarch to get baptized in the river with the king Viking or the patriarch Viking. And this tale goes something like this. All the men go into the water, and right before the missionary dunks them, they all take their sword out and put their arm up in the air with their sword in hand, and everything goes under the water except for their sword arm. That stays dry. Because these Vikings knew two things. One, if it goes down into the water, it dies, and it comes up belonging to Jesus. Two, we have more killing to do. So it has to stay up in the air. Now, we're not Vikings, right? At least, wouldn't it be cool just to be a Viking for a day? But we're not Vikings. But I do feel like we hold our wallets in the air. I feel like those stay dry. Today in this text, Paul is after your money. I am too, but not for the reasons you're going to think I'm after your money. I actually loathe this topic. To be totally honest, for the next minute I'll talk as a pastor, letting you behind my curtain. I don't like this topic very much. Also not for the same reasons that you might not like the topic. I grow tired and a little hesitant of the image that pastors have when they talk about money. Just how God sees money. I don't like the way it makes us look. I'm that vain. I realize that if you were to go to Market Square right now and interview people and you ask them, what do pastors actually preach on? If they don't go to church, they'll say, well, okay, there's 52 weeks in the year. That means 26 of the weeks they talk about money, and the other 26 weeks they talk about hellfire and brimstone. That's what the city already thinks. The image that a pastor already has is, I'm going to try to just extract every dollar out of your impoverished hands as I can, and then I'm going to waste it on something very superfluous that doesn't make any difference to the city. I hate that. It makes me not even want to talk about it. I also hate talking about it if I feel like there's guests in the room, because if you're a guest today, I already know what you're thinking. Crud. I came on this Sunday. I wanted to hear a sermon that was going to change my life forever, right? Money? I'd like to submit that this will change your life forever. Stewarding money, stewarding God's money, having the money but not owning the money that he gives us actually has more potential to grow your life than pretty much anything. It's really the fastest way to grow. It's the deepest way to grow. See, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. And I love this city. Right? And I have a ferocious love for Legacy Church, for you. And that means that I don't have to spend time on my, I want to spend time talking about this. Because I loathe it 
wrongly. Because this is the truth. The Great Commission says that I'm supposed to teach you all that God has commanded. And this is a very vital part of it. Not so that this church makes money, not so that you start giving to the community. Not, that, that's it. It's so that you grow just as much as anything else. I'm tasked with teaching all of us to lower our wallets into the changing tide of God's baptism, into change, so that when it rises again, it belongs to God. It does not belong to us. And listen, I'm banking on there being some very weird teaching in this room when it comes to money. We pick it up, don't we? We're like limp brushes. And we, grow, we start gathering odd teachings, whether we get it from the culture or whether we get it from the church. We have weird ways of looking at God's money and what we're supposed to do with it. So I'm looking forward to kind of chiseling some bad foundations up and building something a little bit better. And today is a great text. I'm, I'm in love with this text. This text is going to be a fun one to walk through, and that's literally what we're going to do. It's going to do all of the heavy lifting. We catch Paul in this very interesting moment. It's interesting because it's got a lot of complexity and emotions. Paul is trying to be very careful, right? Which sometimes it's hard to envision Paul like that. He's trying to be very careful. He's trying to be very nice and gentle, but he's being very deliberate at the same time. He's showing what great leadership looks like. So if you're a fan of leadership and leadership material, this is a great proof text of seeing what a real leader looks like. Paul was writing to a church that he had planted in Corinth. Now, this is a church that was not as much a victim relatively to all of the oppressions and persecutions. It's kind of on the manicured side of the tracks, right? They don't have the financial hardships that they do in Macedonia or like in Judea or other parts of the world. This is not something that they were struggling with at this point in time. News got to Corinth that Judea was hurting. News had gotten out that the churches in Jerusalem and the surrounding area were hurting financially. They didn't have money. They were being persecuted. There was heavy oppression and infliction pressing in. And Corinth got excited. And they said, whoa, whoa, we're going to be a part of that. We're going to be a part of that. Verbal commitment right now. Boom. We're going to give some money to that. We have a lot to give. And led by that example, churches all over started jumping on board, hearing about Corinth. Did you hear about what Corinth did? Their first money in, and they went big. Count us in too. Count us in too. And everyone's excited about what God is doing for these churches in Judea. Macedonia is one of these areas that did this. Right? Now, what's interesting about this text, this letter really, but really this small part of 2 Corinthians, is that Paul is not encouraging them to consider giving. Paul is actually encouraging them to finish what they started. It's starting to look a little bit like they're going to skip out on the check. Because they verbally committed, but they gave nothing. And so Paul was after their money. He's after much, much, much more than just money in this. Because Corinth, and this is where I think it's very applicable to you and I, Corinth is very much, it's, it's, it's like you and it's like me. They're doing the same thing that we all do. We sit down and we're looking at the screen that says click here to give, or we have an open checkbook in front of us, or we're considering partnering with a missionary or giving a car away or something like that. But there is something inside of us. I say it's the Corinthian side of us. It says for a moment, maybe I won't. Maybe I won't give money right now. Maybe I won't give as much. Maybe I won't give at all. 
I think God is beautifully and powerfully speaking to not just the Corinthian church, but all of us through this text, because I have a Corinthian in me. I have a Corinthian in me. And when we give money in different directions, and it comes to how we handle our money as regards God's kingdom, church one thing, but just God's kingdom in general, I have questions. Maybe I won't. Can I afford this? Am I prepared to give right now? Am I prepared to not do some things or say no to some things so that I can do this? Will there be enough left when I'm done? Will it be used well? Will it be caught up in fraud? Shouldn't I be paying off my debt instead? Surely I should. Does it all go to the church? Does 5% go to the church? Does 10% go to the church? Is the tithe still today? Isn't that Old Testament? What if the church is wealthy? What if the church is small? What if the church is big? Will God bless me for this? Will he give me more? Will he protect what I have? Can I just volunteer my time instead? Time is money. Is it worth it? You see, the Corinthian says, I better not. I better not. And the Corinthian always has a really, really, really good reason, doesn't he? He does inside of me. You see, when the Corinthian gives, they're slow, they're hesitant, and they might even write a check, but it would be kind of with that reeling it back in with their eyes. I gave it, but I kind of wished I hadn't. That's a Corinthian giving. You see, in the series that we're doing today, in the last few weeks and the next few, having without owning, managing money, because the money doesn't belong to us, it all belongs to God, but managing and stewarding the money is very difficult for us. It brings an equation that refuses to be balanced. It can't be balanced. We are always faced with not enough. This is the way it looks like. This is our equation, our normal in our broken world. Paycheck minus expenditures equals nothing. Doesn't that feel like it is? Payday minus the next 14 days equals no cents. I'm paychecking it to paychecking it. And it doesn't even matter what income bracket or pay gradient we fall in. It's like that for everybody. I remember I was thinking about this the other day. It, I, I don't remember every paycheck I've ever gotten. I remember my first one. Some of you do too. My, like my first legitimate paycheck, not like, hey, thanks for mowing the lawn, here's a 20. But my first one that the government got their hands on. You know what I'm saying? And that was right before the minimum wage spiked radically up to $4 and a quarter. This was when it was $3.80 back in 1990. I was 14 years of age. I don't even know if it was legal for me to have this job now that I think about it. But I worked in a gym, not doing anything cool. I was wiping sweat up, changing water out in the water cooler, and putting weight plates back on where they, where they went. So that's <laughs> not I think about it. It sounds a lot like a janitor. I think I was a janitor or custodian at a gym for my first job at the age of 14. And I remember getting my first paycheck. And the math wasn't working in my head because, you know, you do the math in your head all day long, right? You, you, you forecast what that paycheck is going to be. And when I got it back, it was radically short. And I was a little bit panicked. Taking it to my newfound employer, I said, I think there's a problem with this paycheck. And he takes it and he looks at it and he says, you're right. There is a problem with this paycheck. It's the government. And he goes off on the government and taxation and how I'm being ripped off. <laughs> No one 
No one feels like they have just so much money at the end of a, of a pay period to just be so extract. No one feels like that. Paycheck minus expenditures equals nothing. And as tough as our current money equation is, Paul teaches us a brand new equation today, and I'm fascinated with it. And the gospel is the only thing that balances it. It's the gospel. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. This is Paul speaking to his church. And this is Paul speaking to us. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Let's pause for a moment. Macedonia is not a church. It's a region of churches. So you have Berea in there. Remember the noble Bereans that researched everything Paul said? Philippi is there. Thessalonica is there. It's a region of churches. And they actually show us a brand new formula. And it is affliction plus poverty plus gospel joy equals sacrificial generosity. Interesting. Interesting. Verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. This is the first thing I learn in this passage, or one of the first things. Stewarding God's treasure is generous and graceful. Stewarding God's treasure is generous and graceful. You see, after Paul went with how excited he was that Corinth was putting everything in, or at least verbally, Macedonia flipped out. And they said, are you kidding me? We're all in too. Inspired by the model of Corinth, who hadn't really written the check yet, they put everything in. But they had extreme poverty. But as extreme as their poverty was, their generosity was even more extreme freaking Paul out a little bit. You can tell just by the mood of this letter. Their response to tough times, empty accounts, it was not to hit the brakes. It was to be sacrificially generous. And let me just say as a side note, generous does not mean bunch of money. Generous does not mean bunches and bunches of money. It means bunches and bunches of sacrifice. That's what makes a gift generous. It's not the amount of the gift. It's the amount of deficit it put the giver in to give the gift. Generous. How did the Macedonians do this? How did they change our equation into this new equation? Right? I'm looking at it, and it basically gives us the answer in verse 1. The grace of God has been given among the churches of Macedonia. They have God's grace to give like this. God gave them a grace God's grace is his favor extended to us totally despite us. God gave them a view of who he was and gave them a view of who they were, and it changes the posture that they have on everything, even money. Even money. Remember what they're giving to. Remember, they're giving to a church that is being beaten up, bruised, and impoverished. Can you imagine yourself being in a meeting, maybe a partnership meeting or a church meeting, where they look at each other and they say, hey, the churches in Judea are hurting, guys. Listen, they're getting clobbered over there. We know what it feels like to be short on paycheck, don't we, guys? Yes, we do. We need to give deep. We need to dig deep. And can't you see, whether it's either Titus or Paul or some other envoy being there, you could almost see them wanting to stop or restrain them. Guys, guys, 
you're being kind of extreme with this. I mean, after all, I don't know that you're any better off than they are in Judea. They should probably be giving a gift to you. But it doesn't stop them. They beg earnestly to do this. No, 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 no. We want to do this. We want to do this. I'm looking at the postures here. That's a big thing for me. And the Macedonian posture I see is, where can we sign up? But the Corinthian posture I see is, maybe we won't sign up. Maybe not. Maybe we will do something else. The number one exit ramp into good sacrificial biblical giving is I don't have enough money. That's what I used to operate under. Out of 10 people that don't give, nine of them will say that to me. I don't have enough money right now. That's what other pastors are told all the time. That's just the biggest reason people are not faithful stewards. That's probably true. You probably don't have enough money, and it's either because you're a very poor steward and you don't have budgets and you haven't really thought it through or been very intentional, or maybe you have a bad theology that thinks that you would actually perform better if God wasn't such a cruddy owner. Because think about this for a moment. If, if you're thinking that, God, if you just gave me more, then I would behave better with what you've given me, then you have a theology that says that God is actually holding you obedient or accountable to something that you don't have the tools to be obedient or accountable in. But God does not give like that. God has given us everything we need to be generous, everything we need to be sacrificial. See, wealth does not build generosity. That's what we think in our head. If I was wealthy, I would be more generous. Like they're equal to each other. Wealth brings about generosity. It's not true. Back in the Great Depression, which was one of the worst moments of wealth or lack of wealth in our country, the average Christian who gave, so hear the statistic correctly so you don't think it's not what it is, the average Christian who gave, gave 3.3% of their annual income. This is during the Great Depression, 3.3%. And we would hear that and say, well, of course, they were dead poor. It's 2.4 today. There's been over a 75% reduction in generosity today. Wealth does not equal generosity. Wealth is not the answer to trying to be generous. We even have it here. We have Corinth, who's a very wealthy church, not being generous. We have Macedonia, a not wealthy church, being very generous. Maybe, maybe the worst financial situations develop the best generosity. Because that's what I'm seeing here. Let's look at verse 6. Accordingly, Paul says, we urged Titus that as he had started so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Okay, this is the second thing I noticed right here. Stewarding God's treasure is something that we're supposed to grow in. Supposed to develop, excel, grow in. Look at the things he's lumping it in with, which is interesting. Faith, speech, knowledge, these are things that we are all actively trying to grow in, are we not? I want to learn more. I want to handle my mouth better. I want to handle my eyes better. I want to believe better. He's putting giving in right with that. We treat it differently. You see, the Macedonian posture, again, let's look at the postures. The Macedonian posture is, I'm prepared to give right now. Here it is. Have a good day. Let us know how it goes. It's the Macedonian posture. The Corinthian one is, I am not prepared to give right now. That's why you don't have the check in your hand. That's why you're having to write this letter and come back and back to get the money. I'm not prepared to give. 
Part of excelling and growing is, and now this is going to sound super basic, hear me out, it's goal setting. I'm going to get a little bit applicable right here or, or try to put some real hard application to it. It's just goal setting, super basic. You cannot develop a giving plan without a goal. You got to know where you're going. You have to have a goal that you're looking at. Let me ask you if you have a giving goal. A lot of us don't. Not to make you feel condemned. It's just something that we're not used to thinking on. Do you have a giving goal? A goal that you can take and then work backwards from to structure your stewardship and your management now. I'm going to give you an example of what this looks like. And ironically, I'm going to use our church as an example because our church has to be very benevolent as well. Our church needs to give as well. We need to be sacrificially generous as well as a church. It's not just something that we're telling you to do so that we can do what we want with the budget. We're following the same precepts. Our goal is super aggressive, possibly bordering on the unrealistic, but we take this hard goal and we work backwards from it and it helps us and establishes the rest of our spending. Our spending as Legacy Church is established after after our giving is established. The goal drives all of our expenditures. Because if you do not have a goal, you cannot have a plan, you cannot excel. If you do not have a goal, you cannot have a plan, you will not excel. Your giving just becomes accidental. Whatever's left, bad plan or lack of plan. Currently as a church, this is an example again, 25% of every dollar that comes in goes right back out the door to missions. 25%. Does it, it doesn't sound very aggressive. Your average church in America is between 6 and 7%, right? And we're trying to get it up to 30%. 10% of every dollar that comes in goes straight back out to church planting. That's mission to us. We want to start new churches that will start new churches, right? It's part of who we are. Campus gets 10%. Because we believe in the college campus. We believe when, whenever the stats say that most people that become Christians, it happens between 18 and 25, not made up. That's a real stat. We believe in the harvest that is on the college campus. We believe in Central City. So we're working towards 10% to Central City, our backyard. And so what this means is, is when we look at all the other expenditures, it is reset and established by our giving goal as a church. That means we might not buy a van as fast as a church our size would procure a van. Not against vans. I'm sure they're very helpful. We're not going to get one really quick, though, right? We might accumulate property slower. We might accumulate staff a little bit slower. There's nothing wrong with property. There's nothing wrong with staff. But the giving is establishing what we're doing. And this is the way my family does it as well. Do you have a plan? Do you have a goal? You know, when you have a plan and you have a goal, it allows you to look at what you have and say no to some things so you can say yes to the goal. I know I'm speaking in basic terms. But part of excelling in giving is learning and developing a list of things you have to say no to. That's what makes giving sacrificial. If you could have everything you want and still give, it might be giving, but it's not sacrificial giving. You get to say yes to everything that you want. Some of us in here, listen, hear me. Hear me as a pastor who loves you, not as someone who's railing on you, okay? Some of us in here are very, very not generous. 
And it's not because you don't have money. It's because you don't want to sacrifice. Sacrifice feels a little bit too much like sacrifice for you to like it. But Luke, I already say no to so much. Luke, I'm already saying no to all kinds of things. I mean, you're telling me to say no to even more things. I don't know if I want to do that. Talk to the Macedonians about it. See if they have any compassion for you. They're saying no. They're digging deep. They're showing us what it looks like. And there's actually a better example still to come. Because part of excelling, I'm going to move on to the next point, part of excelling is being regular. It's being timely with giving. I know this feels like a reach. And this is probably a different sermon altogether. So I'm going to touch it and then move. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 16, just for a moment, this is like getting getting in the time machine and going back to Paul's first letter to the same church. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints. He's talking about this same collection, by the way, the one that they still haven't been able to collect on. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. On the first day of the week, it just it implies that whenever they're gathered together. The idea is frequency matters. When you increase, you're generous. There's no such thing as increase without generosity, walking lockstep with the increase. Are you increasing? Then you're generous. That's what they're talking about. Regularity and pattern to anything will always bring more growth than not being regular, than being infrequent. Think about it. When you eat, you eat regularly. You sleep regularly. And if you don't do those things regularly, things don't get healthy. I date my wife regularly. I read the Bible regularly. I pray regularly. Why is there more growth doing it regular than infrequently? Because I'm able to say no to the flesh. Because does my flesh want to do any of that? I mean, besides eat and sleep? No. But I have to say no to one thing to say yes to another. And when I do that in a regular pattern, I grow faster and I honor the Lord more. Part of excelling is just being regular. You know, I'm not going to go further on this, but there's a blog on the front page of our website that addresses some of the planning and the goal setting that might be of help to you if you've never done anything like this. If you've never established a goal, it might be something that you look at. Let's jump into verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty he might become rich. Third thing I'm learning, stewarding God's treasure is a reflection of our genuine gospel belief. It's a reflection of how you see the cross empty tomb. It's a reflection of how we understand God's good news to us. You see, the church doesn't tax people like the government does. We don't tax people. When I'm taxed by the government, I might whine a little bit, but I don't like engage my heart on how I feel about that. I don't do that. It almost feels like it would be better if the church we just taxed. I think even you would eventually prefer that. Wouldn't it be easier? And Why didn't God just do this? Why didn't God just say, hey, everybody, give 10% or I blast you. Deal? One out of $10 goes to me or I blow you up. 
We would prefer that. You know why? Because we'd never have to engage our heart. We'd never have to look at sacrifice. We'd never have to look at the hurt of, of giving out of a depth of poverty. We'd never have to do that. I think Paul, I think he could have demanded this. I mean, he's an apostle. I think he could have said, everybody give a certain percent, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't lean on them and try to make them feel guilty. He doesn't lean on them and try to get their greed up so that they give more. He leads them to the gospel. This is the core and kernel part of all biblical giving. Listen, you could be giving 20, 30, 40, 50, 80, 90 percent of your paycheck to the Lord and be very unbiblical in how you're doing it based off of this. Let me explain. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Well, how was God rich and became poor? How did that look? What did that even mean? All the way from the incarnation to the death of Jesus. Those are the two pivotal moments where he shed the most glory. When Jesus arrives on the scene, you start to see a gradual shedding of glory and a gradual accumulation of shame. They move contra each other. He's shedding and sloughing off the glory, and he's picking up and accumulating our shame. That's what it means, our wealth, our position with the Lord. If you are, in fact, a son or a daughter of the king, you have position with the king. You are in the bloodline. You have royal blood in your veins. You belong to God, and that has afforded you because Jesus impoverished himself. He impoverished himself. Here's the big question. When you think of giving, do you think of Jesus? Don't be so quick to answer. When you think of giving... Do you think of Jesus? Or do you think of what, what does the church need? What can I afford? Will there be any left after? Are they ripping me off? I'll do it so I don't get blasted. I'll do it so I can get more. What are you thinking of when you sit down once a month, once a year, to give? Right? Do your thoughts go to the cross? Is your giving evidence of a sincere love, an understanding of the gospel, or is it the evidence of guilt or greed. And we're going to talk about that in the future, not today. Some of us, and it's just a little bit of an insidious undertone of saying, I want to give because I know God will give me if I give. I can enjoy more finances if I just give to God. That's giving because of greed. It's not giving because of the gospel. It's unbiblical giving. Or you can say, I'm going to give to the Lord because that's what you're supposed to do. And if I do it, then God will approve of me more. And if I don't do it, then I'm just going to be in trouble. That's giving because of guilt. That, too, is not biblical in the, in the fact that it's not centered in, around the gravity and orbiting around the gospel. I think people, well, I won't go there. I think just I want to focus on the fact that Paul was careful to avoid this, and he was careful to lead them straight to the gospel. And I think whenever we are making our expenditures in whatever direction we go, those are our means. How we handle those means, we have to be very good gospel preachers to our bank account. You should preach the gospel to your bank account because that's where we need it considerably. That's where we need it. I want to preach it like a Macedonian. I have to remind myself that poverty and wealth are forever redefined. They're redefined. Poverty is something that Jesus took to himself. Wealth is something that he gave to me. 
Let's look at Philippians 2, and I'm going to explain what I mean by this digression into shame and this giving away of glory. Chris actually taught this a little bit two weeks ago. says this, and it's going to be up on the screen. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing. Do nothing. Don't think this isn't talking about money. Do nothing. This is talking about how you handle your money. You write checks, click go. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, here we are, that's the pinnacle of wealth, He's in the fellowship of God. When I say the fellowship, he is in the eternal presence of all glory. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, together with the angels' praise, and everything is beautiful. He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And that is the beginning of impoverishing right there. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, humbling self by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see this gradual impoverishing. He's condescending to be with us as he's increasing the wealth he gives to us. We have a stooping God, a lowering God, who vacates his wealthy position, not giving a portion of himself. Hear me, giving all of himself. All of himself. In other words, Jesus doesn't pause like the Corinthian church and say, maybe I won't. Maybe I won't dispense this wealth on the cross. Maybe I won't do it. Maybe not as much. Maybe not now. But he tackles the cross with the joy set before him. Not the joy of the pain of being up on the cross and God's wrath raining down on him. Not the joy for but the joy of this. This, what it was going to create the family it would create, the new gospel living it would create, the new nation that would start. That's what he was taking joy in. He was looking past the cross and seeing that. It was for the joy set before him that he tackles something so hideous as a cross. Friends, listen, this is what balances our equation. We give like God gives. We give like God gives. We take our affliction, our hard times, our slender means, Right? We take all of these things and we give. We give with gospel joy set before us. We give where it's sacrificial, and that is generosity, and it looks very Macedonian. But it takes a continual saying no to the Corinthian inside. Let's look at verse 10. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. We're going to talk about that in the future as well. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. This is my last point, stewarding God's treasure. It means finishing well and applying our means. He's just saying finish it. Just finish it. Enough with the good intentions. Match it with great action within your means. Within your means. We give according to our means. 
And then God has a spiritual gift for some to give beyond their means. That's what we caught in the early part of this passage, right? What does that mean? You've met these people. You've seen these people, right? They have this almost like a spiritual overcapacity that is able to give means beyond what they have. That's what the Macedonians were doing. What is a mean? A mean is everything. I think some of us, when we look at our means, we say all that we have after our bills are paid, all that we have after we spend whatever we want to spend, what is left are means. That's not true. Everything is means. That's what he's speaking of right now. Can you see why Paul was after their money and much, much, much more than their money? This is a gospel signature in their life. Rich generosity reflects the heart of the gospel. Paul's fighting for that if he's fighting for anything. He's fighting for that if he's fighting for anything. I'm going to say this in one breath. The fast application. Pray for grace. Get a goal. Get a plan. Say no to things. Get regular. Preach the gospel to your bank account and finish well. You see how the passage just takes care of itself. Pray for grace. Get a goal. Get a plan, which means saying no to things. It means being regular, which means being assertive with the gospel whenever your heart wants to doubt the very act of giving. And finish well. I'll tell you what. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to finish with this. If, listen, if giving money bothers you, you are not ready for radical Christianity. If giving money bothers you, you are not ready for radical Christianity because radical Christianity calls for everything, not just money. Calls for everything. If you were mismanaging from God, check that. If you were stealing from God, you have a gospel-sized crack. It's not a numbers problem. It's a gospel problem. Okay? It's a gospel problem. So can you worship from a place today where you do two things? Repent from where you might have mismanaged and been unfruitful with what God has given you to steward. Can you repent from that? Can you begin a plan? If you're in a family, develop it with your family. If you're on your own and you need help, get help. But start the process of develop. Can you do that? And then number two, can you celebrate a stooping and lowering God who did something radical to create a radical people? That's what we do. We celebrate God's beauty. Philippians 2 shows us a beauty of what he did. It's an amazing thing to see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being this God who condescends to come to us, looking like us, living among us, picking up shame, picking up God's wrath so that we might pick up wealth. Lord, we are wealthy. Your people are wealthy, spiritually wealthy. And that's because you've done something spiritually beautiful for us. So God, in this moment, I'm not looking for, I'm not looking for just more money. The church is not looking for more money. We're looking for changed hearts. Looking for sacrificial generosity, Father. This affects us more than just about anything in our lives, how close the money is to our hearts. God, that we would not see it like the culture, but we would see it like you see it. And Father, we thank you that 
we know that you're not just moving in bank accounts, you're moving in hearts. And I even think even this morning you're moving in hearts. That there's a bankruptcy, there's a bankruptcy in hearts here. People who are far from you, they hear about you, they wonder about you, but they know they don't love you. They know they're not committed to you or devoted to you. But you have a wealth waiting for them. You have a wealth, a family to call them into. So Lord, we pray that you would work in their heart, rescue, redeem them, even today. Even today. Lord, you're so good to us, and we thank you. Thank you for being so good to us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, now's the time to...